I think sometimes it would be enough if we just read Scripture and ended. I think that psalm says it pretty well. But this morning, I have a confession to make. And um, when it occurred to me that this might actually be a good way to begin the sermon, what was even more intriguing to me than what I might actually say, and at the time I thought about this, I didn't have anything particular in mind, was the immediate reaction I had to the idea. It was one of resistance. To put it simply, I just didn't want to do that. And unless I miss my guest this morning, there are probably at least a few of us here this morning who can kind of relate to that feeling. I mean, not very many of us probably woke up this morning with uh, the first thought in our mind being, oh, I feel great today. I wonder what I can confess to. What I suspect is probably more likely is that when things have not gone well and uh, when we have had a significant part to play in things not going well, that the anticipation of owning and acknowledging our own responsibility is generally not something we look forward to or that we relish very much. As you know, we're still in the midst of our series of Life on the Vine, where we've been reflecting on John chapter 15, that passage of scripture, which is the mission statement, or which our mission statement from the church is based on, the mission statement that you see printed on the front of your bulletins. What you find there is that we're reminded that first we are abiding or remaining connected to Jesus, and then out of that grow the two other summary statements that are right there printed in that, in that line. Loving one another and serving and bearing witness in the world. And that as we are both attentive to this and intentional about it and about what God is growing in us, there are certain recognizable patterns of life that begin to emerge that we've been talking about as spiritual practices now for quite a few weeks. There are those patterns to describe what life in the kingdom of God looks like as it's being lived out. So far in the series, we've touched on just a few, really, just a sampling of the many, many practices that shape our lives as the followers of Jesus. Uh, We've talked about silence and forgiveness, talked about hospitality, welcoming the stranger. And last week during our Adventist Heritage Series, we spent some time talking about living justly. They're all examples of those identifying patterns that don't qualify us for God's favor, They don't earn God's favor, but rather they're things that spring up in response to the realization of just how graciously God has dealt with us and how much we're loved. But out of all of those, there are probably few practices that we could talk about this morning that at least have the potential to feel as uncomfortable or are as likely to be misunderstood or, if possible, maybe even avoided altogether as the one I want you to consider for just a couple minutes this morning. The practice of confession. And there are good reasons for this that are rooted very deeply, both in our common experience as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, and in some of the ways the practice itself has at times become distorted and misunderstood over the years. But to begin with, the source of our discomfort can be traced all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, which begins with a very well-known conversation that we have read many, many times before. We could probably recite most of it. 
conversation that took place between our first parents and a serpent. But what I want you to notice this morning is not so much that conversation as the one that follows almost immediately afterwards. One that we're introduced to, beginning with verse 7 of Genesis 3. And so if you have your Bibles this morning and want to follow, or if you just want to read on the screen, I'd like to go with you there for just a bit. Verse 7 of Genesis 3. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It's a very intriguing story here. Having been convinced now that God really did not have their best interests in mind, they had embraced not only the knowledge, the experience of good, but also the experience of evil. And the most immediate result of what they did was that now, standing completely unconcealed before God and each other, was no longer something that felt comfortable or safe. Or as the passage put it, they realized something different now, and they described it as feeling naked. And with a kind of vulnerability and a sense of exposure they had never experienced before, their immediate impulse was to cover up. And so fig leaf gardens were sown, and when God comes into the garden, walking there in the cool of the day, their immediate impression, or their immediate impulse, is to hide. They hide. Verse 9. But the Lord God called out to them, Where are you? They answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid Because I was naked, so I hid. And you know, it's that sense of exposure and anxiety, that desire to hide, that has been a part of human experience ever since that moment. Particularly during those times when we have really made a mess of things and when we know that we're in deep weeds. But you know, even more significant than what their response was in this passage, I think, is how God responds. Notice what God does. God calls out to Adam and Eve, not because he doesn't know where they are, but because he knows if they are going to find healing and resolution to what has just taken place, they are going to, be able to, they are going to need to be able to say where they are. They need to be able to articulate it, and they need to admit that they are indeed hiding. Well, we see the conversation as it continues. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? How did you come to that conclusion? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And they're in a way that uh, helps them understand the connection between their actions and what they were now experiencing. God now invites them to be both honest and specific about exactly what had happened. Again, not because God needed the information. He already knew what had taken place. But because they needed to own it. They needed to say it. But this time, once again, in their impulse to hide, it's more than just fig leaves that they use to try to cover their sense of exposure. 
Notice what they do to try to conceal themselves, beginning in verse 12. The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So much for owning your own stuff, right? Not off to a very good start here. The woman you put here, you know, the serpent deceived me. And their children have been following the lead they set for us ever since. And as we all know, when we find ourselves in similar situations, that impulse to just kind of shift the responsibility, kind of portray ourselves in a little better light than we might actually be, is an incredibly powerful one. It's alive and well. Which is not to say that we have to give in to it but it is to say that it is both dangerous and foolish to deny that that's exactly what's happening. So even more than helping us to understand the roots of our struggle with this whole idea of confession, this passage also gives us an intriguing picture of what God is doing as he deals with those who have made a real mess of their lives now. You see a picture of a God who calls out to us, who helps us realize how we are hiding, and then invites us to be both honest and specific, not about other people's responsibility in what's happened, but about ours, because that is what we most need to be aware of if we're going to find healing. It's also what frees us to be able to ask for and receive forgiveness. It's difficult to forgive someone for something that they won't admit that they've done. And then finally, in verse 21, it tells us that in place of fig leaves, this is very interesting, God provides us with other garments, garments that he has fashioned himself, garments that cover our sense of nakedness in ways that all of our attempts at denial and blaming, no matter how expertly designed or skillfully executed, never quite achieve. That sense only goes away by what God provides. But still another reason why some of us struggle with this whole idea of confession at times, I think, also arises out of our understanding of God and the way the practice of confession and how it actually works have been twisted and distorted. See, along with our first parents, we too can sometimes find ourselves buying into the insinuations that the serpent offered, and we can discover our experience shifting from one that is rooted in grace to one that is driven by anxiety and fear. That was certainly the case for me, anyway, shortly after I became a Christian when I was still in high school, attending La Sierra High School at the time. It was a time in my life when I had been deeply impacted by this new understanding of who God was. as a God of love and grace who had welcomed me and accepted me as a part of his kingdom, who called me his child, And it was an incredible sense of peace and reassurance and acceptance that uh, just seemed to permeate life for me during that time. Remained very strong until the day that I was studying some Bible lessons that someone had given me, and I came across this whole idea of confession, really, for the first time. And, you know, I'm not sure if it was the material that I was reading, the lessons themselves, or if all of this is simply a reflection of my kind of state of mental health at the time, but I can remember my sense of peace evaporating 
as I recalled some of the poor choices that I had made over the years that I had never officially confessed to anyone. And it really didn't take me very long to transition from a place of peace and assurance to a place of anxiety and fear. As I now saw these things as obstacles that I had to get over if I was ever going to have assurance of my acceptance with God again. Very interesting thing that happened there. I remember uh, getting 50 cents and filling out an envelope that I mailed to a TG&Y store. I don't know if you remember TG&Y, those of you who are old enough. I, of course, didn't put a return address on it, but nevertheless, I mailed the envelope to cover the cost of this blue felt-tip pen that uh, somehow I had managed to take from that store. I think it was even before I started school, when I was just a little kid. I had stolen it to need to make it right. Mailed back my 50 cents. I can remember the months it took me to work up the courage to have a conversation with my parents, many, many years after this occurred, about an incident when I had been at a camp for, for the summer, not for the summer, but actually just for a couple of days I was there, when I had called them on the phone and told them that I was sick and they needed to come and get me, when the truth of the matter was I wasn't sick at all. I just thought the camp was lousy and I wanted to go home. I didn't like it there. There was the thing that apparently I had done in PE class at La Sierra High School that I felt I needed to talk to the coach about. And the strange thing is, is I honestly don't remember what it was now. But what I do remember is the day that I walked into the coach's office to talk to him about it. And I think I remember it so well because I actually did it twice. Because the first time, I didn't think that I'd really confessed well enough. So I went back and did it a second time. And I remember his somewhat bewildered response. He said, Curtis, why are you so worried about all this? Well, the reason I was so worried about it was because my picture of God and my understanding of what confession was had become completely distorted. It was as if God were this being that was sitting there with these ledger books where he was keeping careful record, you know, making his list and checking it twice. And if you missed something on the ledger somewhere, then you were going to be disqualified. I didn't want to be disqualified. It was not grace. It was not integrity. It was not even a desire to restore damaged relationships that was motivating my behavior. It was simply the fear that I was going to be disqualified. And you know, it took me much longer than I wish it had to finally figure out that that is not what confession is about. And it took me much longer than I wish it had for me to finally allow my picture of God to come back into focus again as who God really is. What I finally came to realize was that confession is not a punishment. It is not a unique form of penance that you kind of do when you've done something wrong so you can be qualified to be in God's favor again. But rather, it's something that is meant to arise in the context of grace that actually frees us from being controlled by the fear and the impulse to hide and the anxiety that so often gets associated with this experience. We're supposed to be something that frees us from the need to defend ourselves and to protect our image and try to be something that we're not. And where, aside from what anyone else has said or done, we are able to own our own part in things, whatever that might be, and discover in doing so that that kind of honest confession, in the context of a genuinely safe community that is deeply rooted in grace, 
actually has tremendous power to open the door to profound levels of healing and reconciliation. And when neglected, also has tremendous power for hindering that process and perhaps even from preventing it from happening. I think that's a significant part of what's being expressed in all of those familiar Bible texts that we talk about when we talk about confession. Proverbs 28.13, that reminds us that uh, he who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them finds mercy. And in the glimpse into the life of the early church that we get in James 5.16, where believers are encouraged to confess your sins to each other and pray for each other, so that you may be healed. And in chapter 1 of 1 John, where it is clear that it is in an atmosphere of openness and assurance and grace that this practice is supposed to take place. Notice again what it is that John actually says in 1 John. We've read these texts before, but I want you to hear them again. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. I'm not sure it gets much clearer than that. It's in the context of that kind of community that confession happens. See, woven deeply into the fabric that makes up the life of the kingdom is a pattern of living in which we are free and intentional about the practice of simply admitting ourselves to ourselves. Admitting ourselves to ourselves and to God, who already knows but knows we need to be able to say this, and to each other, and that in the midst of a safe community that is rooted in both integrity and grace. And that perhaps is where the experience, or we experience a bit of a rub in this whole process. Because it may be that one of the first things that we will need to confess as a group is that we have not always been that kind of community. And in some ways, we may not entirely be that kind of community. Whether it's our quickness to criticize or the sharpness of our tongues or the way we have of depersonalizing each other when things are not going well. We sometimes miss the opportunity to be that community. In fact, in some instances, because some communities have not yet grown to levels of safety or grace that one might wish for, in some situations it may be very wise to think carefully about what you say and who you say it to, so that in an attempt to reach out for healing, it doesn't become one more occasion for inflicting pain and injury. And I'm not talking here about avoiding accountability, but rather the spectacle that's created by an army that sometimes shoots its own wounded. And in even more severe cases, where families or other groups of people exercise power or control in violent or abusive ways, for those who are on the receiving end of this, in order for healing to really take place, confession may be much less about admitting guilt and much more about admitting that you're in trouble and that you need to seek help from someone outside that group, maybe another trusted adult or a pastor or a friend, because those being abused are sometimes made to feel responsible for it by the person who is doing it 
And so confession, in that sense, can actually be twisted into something that actually denies what is really happening. Which is why if you're in that situation, you need help from someone on the outside if you're really going to have a chance for healing. Confession there is simply a matter of saying, I need some help. But having said all of that, and it's important to say all of that, when we do find communities of grace, the healing and the transformation that we can experience there is truly, truly amazing. If you have ever attended an AA meeting, you've got a glimpse of what this kind of community looks like. Whether you've been there as a member or whether you're there just to be in support of somebody who is there, it's an incredible experience to go. As part of the practice, every time they gather, and this, by the way, is one expression of the the, uh, practice of confession, they introduce everyone who has come in a particular way. They say their name, and that no matter how long they have been sober, that they are an alcoholic or whatever other addiction it is that they may be dealing with. Then they might say how long they've been sober, how long since the last time there was a problem. And then what follows is no matter what their successes or failures have been up to that point, they hear the affirmation of the entire group welcoming them there by name. It is a very powerful thing to sit in a group and be a part of that. Very, very powerful stuff. And as I listen to people who regularly attend those meetings, what they say it is that keeps them going back is the transformation they see taking place in the lives of the people that are there and the hope it gives them that that same kind of transformation can happen and will continue to happen in their lives. Being able to admit ourselves to ourselves in a community of grace is a powerful part of the process of healing and transformation. Whether we do it alone with God or with a trusted friend or counselor or spiritual director or even to those who have been hurt by us or the things that we represent, it's powerful. I recently had the occasion to read a book uh, by Donald Miller, a very interesting little book called uh, Blue Like Jazz. And in this book, he tells a story about something that he and some of his college friends did one time at the university where they were staying. They had something there that uh, is very much like our Renaissance Fair they had every year. Many of you have been to the Renaissance Fair. Um, Suffice it to say, it's not very much like the county fair that uh, Alfred Riddle was talking about this morning. Uh, But instead of the usual themes that get developed at the Renaissance Fair, what they decided they would do is this. They were going to set up a confession booth, something that was very appropriate to the time. And uh, they would put up a sign that said, you know, make your confessions here. And they dressed in the garb of of the monks and and set up the booth and went and did this thing. Let me share with you an excerpt from the book that explains how they went about this. It's kind of a neat thing that happens. Okay, guys, here's the catch. He's explaining now what they're going to do. When people come to the booth, we are not actually going to accept confessions. We are going to confess to them. We are going to confess that as followers of Jesus, we have not been very loving. And for that, we are sorry. We will apologize for the Crusades. We will apologize for televangelists. 
We will apologize for neglecting the poor and the lonely. And we will ask them to forgive us. And we will tell them that in our selfishness, we have misrepresented Jesus. And we will tell people who come into the booth that in spite of it all, Jesus really does love them. And they did this. And you read about their experience in the book here as he goes on to describe how people came into the booth more out of curiosity than anything else. Most of them, people who had long since written off God or anything to do with spiritual things in their lives. And how when they sat in the booth and heard the confessions, went away with tears in their eyes and with a strange new openness to considering that maybe God had something to offer them after all. Understanding that no one had ever asked forgiveness for that before, for the very things that had driven them away from the church as they had thought about Christianity and how we had made our presence known in the world. Very powerful tool that confession can be for healing. You know, in the midst of a world obsessed with lots of other things, even though it is indeed the road less traveled, something as simple as owning our own stuff can open a powerful path to healing and to peace. Jesus felt so strongly about it, in fact, that he reminds us in Matthew 18 that if you're there offering your gift at the altar, if you showed up for church, and you remember that someone has something against you that needs to be fixed, just to leave it there and go and take care of it first. In fact, I believe this was the kind of thing he was talking about when he told his disciples one afternoon that he was giving them the keys of the kingdom and that in what they would do, they would be able to loose or set free what had already been loosed and set free in heaven which I believe was another way of him telling them that as a community, they could have an incredible amount of power in people's lives. What God had already declared done, they could help people realize. Not only by being a place that's grounded in grace and where it is safe to speak the truth to each other, but also by being a place where we're able to hear from each other the words of forgiveness as well. You know, one of the traditions of early Christianity that was practiced almost from the beginning, first with the Desert Fathers and later on in monasteries, and which um, good Protestants got rid of at the time of the Reformation because confessions and indulgences were being sold in order to get God's grace, was the practice of actually going to people and having some place where you could sit with a friend and admit ourselves to ourselves and to someone else, and hear the voice of another human being say, God forgives you. Not because they were endowed with authority that was God's, but because sometimes we just need to hear from each other that we're forgiven. It's too bad that we've lost a bit of that practice in our attempt to be good Protestant folks. We can learn from it as a community. That's the kind of community to which this practice in Jesus himself invites us, I think. And, you know, it was at this point that I was looking for a really good story or illustration that I thought, you know, would really tie this all together and make the point well. When it occurred to me that perhaps the very best story this morning I could tell might be the very one that you're living right now. 
And so I guess maybe I'll just leave that part with you. And Father, that's what we want as our prayer this morning, is that in our lives, you might be glorified. Thank you so much, Lord, for knowing all there is to know about us and loving us anyway, and for guiding us individually and as a community into a place where we can be that same kind of presence in the world around us, that you might truly be glorified in us and in our lives and in this church, is our prayer in Jesus' name.